Section 8 of History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary R. Beard, Part 5. Sectional Conflict and Reconstruction. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary R. Beard, Part 5. Sectional Conflict and Reconstruction. Chapter 15. The Civil War and Reconstruction. Concluded. The Results of the Civil War. There is a strong and natural tendency on the part of writers to stress the dramatic and heroic aspects of the war, but the long judgment of history requires us to include all other significant phases as well. Like every great armed conflict, the Civil War outran the purposes of those who took part in it. Waged over the nature of the Union, it made a revolution in the Union, changing public policies and constitutional principles, and giving a new direction to agriculture and industry. THE SUPREMACY OF THE UNION First and foremost, the war settled for all time the long dispute as to the nature of the federal system. The doctrine of state sovereignty was laid to rest. Men might still speak of the rights of states, and think of their commonwealths with affection, but nullification and secession were destroyed. The nation was supreme. THE DESTRUCTION OF THE SLAVE POWER Next to the vindication of national supremacy was the destruction of the planting aristocracy of the South, that great power which had furnished leadership of undoubted ability, and had so long contested with the industrial and commercial interests of the North. The first paralyzing blow at the planters was struck by the abolition of slavery. The second and third came with the fourteenth, 1868, and fifteenth, 1870, amendments, giving the ballot to freedmen and excluding from public office the Confederate leaders, driving from the work of Reconstruction the finest talents of the South. As if to add bitterness to gall and wormwood, the Fourteenth Amendment forbade the United States or any State to pay any debts incurred in age of the Confederacy or in the emancipation of the slaves, plunging into utter bankruptcy the Southern financiers who had stripped their section of capital to support their cause. So the Southern planters found themselves excluded from public office and ruled over by their former bondmen under the tutelage of Republican leaders. Their labor system was wrecked, and their money and bonds were as worthless as waste paper. The South was subject to the North. That which neither the Federalists nor the Whigs had been able to accomplish in the realm of statecraft was accomplished on the field of battle. THE TRIUMPH OF INDUSTRY The wreck of the planting system was accompanied by a mighty upswing of northern industry which made the old Whigs of Massachusetts and Pennsylvania stare in wonderment. The demands of the federal government for manufactured goods at unrestricted prices gave a stimulus to business which more than replaced the lost markets of the South. Between 1860 and 1870 the number of manufacturing establishments increased 79.6% as against 14.2 for the previous decade, while the number of persons employed almost doubled. There was no doubt about the future of American industry. THE VICTORY FOR THE PROTECTIVE TARIFF Moreover, it was henceforth to be well protected. For many years before the war the friends of protection had been on the defensive. The Tariff Act of 1857 imposed duties so low as to presage a tariff for revenue only. The war changed all that. The extraordinary military expenditures, requiring heavy taxes on all sources, justified tariffs so high that a follower of Clay or Webster might well have gasped with astonishment. After the war was over, the debt remained, and both interest and principal had to be paid. 
protective arguments based on economic reasoning were supported by a plain necessity for revenue which admitted no dispute. A LIBERAL IMMIGRATION POLICY Linked with industry was the labor supply. The problem of manning industries became a pressing matter, and Republican leaders grappled with it. In the platform of the Union Party adopted in 1864, it was declared that foreign immigration, which in the past has added so much to the wealth, the development of resources, and the increase of power to this nation, the asylum of the oppressed of all nations, should be fostered and encouraged by a liberal and just policy. In that very year Congress, recognizing the importance of the problem, passed a measure of high significance, creating a Bureau of Immigration and authorizing a modified form of indentured labor, by making it legal for immigrants to pledge their wages in advance to pay their passage over. Though the bill was soon repealed, the practice authorized by it was long continued. The cheapness of the passage shortened the term of service, but the principle was older than the days of William Penn. THE HOMESTEAD ACT OF 1862 In the immigration measure guaranteeing a continuous and adequate labor supply, the manufacturers saw an offset to the Homestead Act of 1862, granting free lands to settlers, the homestead law they had resisted in a long and bitter congressional battle. Naturally, they had not taken kindly to a scheme which lured men away from the factories, or enabled them to make unlimited demands for higher wages, as the price of remaining. Southern planters likewise had feared free homesteads for the good reason that they only promised to add to the overbalancing power of the North. In spite of the opposition, supporters of a liberal land policy made steady gains. Free soil Democrats, Jacksonian farmers and mechanics, labor reformers and political leaders like Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois and Andrew Johnson of Tennessee, kept up the agitation in season and out. More than once were they able to force a homestead bill through the House of Representatives only to have it blocked in the Senate, where Southern interests were entrenched. Then, after the Senate was won over, a Democratic president, James Buchanan, vetoed the bill. Still the issue lived. The Republicans, strong among the farmers of the Northwest, favored it from the beginning, and pressed it upon the attention of the country. Finally the manufacturers yielded, they received their compensation in the contract labor law. In 1862 Congress provided for the free distribution of land in 160-acre lots, among men and women of strong arms and willing hearts, ready to build their serried lines of homesteads to the Rockies and beyond. INTERNAL IMPROVEMENTS If farmers and manufacturers were early divided on the matter of free homesteads, the same could hardly be said of internal improvements. The western tiller of the soil was as eager for some easy way of sending his produce to market as the manufacturer was for the same means to transport his goods to the consumer on the farm. While the Confederate leaders were writing to their constitution a clause forbidding all appropriations for internal improvements, the Republican leaders at Washington were planning such expenditures from the Treasury in the form of public land grants to railways, as would have dazed the authors of the National Road Bill half a century earlier. Sound Finance, National Banking From Hamilton's day to Lincoln's, businessmen in the East had contended for a sound system of national currency. The experience of the states with paper money, painfully impressive in the years before the framing of the Constitution, had been convincing to those who understood the economy of business. The Constitution, as we have seen, bore the signs of this experience. States were forbidden to emit bills of credit, 
paper money, in short. This provision stood clear in the document, but judicial ingenuity had circumvented it in the age of Jacksonian democracy. The states had enacted, and the Supreme Court, after the death of John Marshall, had sustained laws chartering banking companies and authorizing them to issue paper money. So the country was beset by the old curse, the banks of western and southern states issuing reams of paper notes to help borrowers pay their debts. In dealing with war finances, the Republicans attacked this ancient evil. By Act of Congress in 1864, they authorized a series of national banks founded on the credit of government bonds and empowered to issue notes. The next year they stopped all bank paper sent forth under the authority of the states by means of a prohibitive tax. In this way, by two measures, Congress restored federal control over the monetary system, although it did not re-establish the United States Bank, so hated by Jacksonian democracy. Destruction of States' Rights by Fourteenth Amendment These acts and others not cited here were measures of centralization and consolidation at the expense of the powers and dignity of the States. They were all of high import, but the crowning act of nationalism was the Fourteenth Amendment, which, among other things, forbade the states to deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The immediate occasion, though not the actual cause of this provision, was the need for protecting the rights of freedmen against hostile legislatures in the South. The result of the amendment, as was prophesied in protest loud and long from every quarter of the Democratic Party, was the subjection of every act of state, municipal, and county authorities to possible annulment by the Supreme Court at Washington. The expected happened. Few Negroes ever brought cases under the Fourteenth Amendment to the attention of the courts, but thousands of state laws, municipal ordinances, and acts of local authorities were set aside as null and void under it. Laws of states regulating railway rates, fixing hours of labor in bake shops, and taxing corporations were in due time to be annulled, as conflicting with an amendment erroneously supposed to be designed solely for the protection of Negroes. As centralized power over tariffs, railways, public lands, and other national concerns went to Congress, so centralized power over the acts of state and local authorities involving an infringement of personal and property rights was conferred on the federal judiciary, the apex of which was the Supreme Court at Washington. Thus the old federation of independent states, all equal in rights and dignity, each wearing the jewel of sovereignty, so celebrated in southern oratory, had gone the way of all flesh under the withering blasts of civil war. Reconstruction in the South Theories about the position of the seceding states On the morning of April 9, 1865, when General Lee surrendered his army to General Grant, eleven states stood in a peculiar relation to the Union, now declared perpetual. Lawyers and political philosophers were much perturbed, and had been for some time, as to what should be done with the members of the former Confederacy. Radical Republicans held that they were conquered provinces at the mercy of Congress, to be governed under such laws as it saw fit to enact, and until, in its wisdom, it decided to readmit any or all of them to the Union. Men of more conservative views held that, as the war had been waged by the North on the theory that no state could succeed from the Union, the Confederate states had merely attempted to withdraw and failed. The corollary of this latter line of argument was simple. The southern states are still in the Union, and it is the duty of the President, as Commander-in-Chief, to remove the Federal troops as soon as order is restored, and the state governments are ready to function once more as usual. Lincoln's Proposal 
Some such simple and conservative form of reconstruction had been suggested by Lincoln in a proclamation of December 8, 1863. He proposed a pardon and a restoration of property, except in slaves, to nearly all who had directly or by implication participated in the existing rebellion, on condition that they take an oath of loyalty to the Union. He then announced that when, in any of the states named, a body of voters, qualified under the law as it stood before secession and equal in number to one-tenth the votes cast in 1860, took the oath of allegiance, they should be permitted to re-establish a state government. Such a government, he added, should be recognized as a lawful authority and entitled to protection under the federal constitution. With reference to the status of the former slaves, Lincoln made it clear that, while their freedom must be recognized, he would object to any legislation which may yet be consistent as a temporary arrangement with their present condition as a laboring, landless, and homeless class. Andrew Johnson's Plan His Impeachment Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, the vice-president, soon after taking office, proposed to pursue a somewhat similar course. In a number of states he appointed military governors, instructing them at the earliest possible moment to assemble conventions, chosen by that portion of the people of the said states who are loyal to the United States, and proceed to the organization of regular civil government. Johnson, a Southern man and a Democrat, was immediately charged by the Republicans with being too ready to restore the Southern states. As the months went by, the opposition to his measures and policies in Congress grew in size and bitterness. The contest resulted in the impeachment of Johnson by the House of Representatives in March, 1868, and his acquittal by the Senate merely because his opponents lacked one vote of the two-thirds required for conviction. Congress enacts Reconstruction Laws In fact, Congress was in a strategic position. It was the law-making body, and it could, moreover, determine the conditions under which senators and representatives from the South were to be readmitted. It therefore proceeded to pass a series of Reconstruction Acts, carrying all of them over Johnson's veto. These measures, the first of which became a law on March 2, 1867, betrayed an animus not found anywhere in Lincoln's plans or Johnson's proclamations. They laid off the ten states, the whole Confederacy, with the exception of Tennessee, still outside the Pale, into five military districts, each commanded by a military officer appointed by the President. They ordered the commanding general to prepare a register of voters for the election of delegates to conventions chosen for the purpose of drafting new constitutions. Such voters, however, were not to be, as Lincoln had suggested, loyal persons duly qualified under the law existing before secession, but the male citizens of said state, twenty-one years old and upward, of whatever race, color, or previous condition, except such as may be disenfranchised for participation in the rebellion, or for felony at common law. This was the death knell to the idea that the leaders of the Confederacy and their white supporters might be permitted to share in the establishment of the new order. Power was thus arbitrarily thrust into the hands of the newly emancipated male Negroes, and the handful of whites who could show a record of loyalty. That was not all. Each state was, under the Reconstruction Acts, compelled to ratify the Fourteenth Amendment to the Federal Constitution as a price of restoration to the Union. The composition of the conventions thus authorized may be imagined. Bondmen, without the asking, without preparation, found themselves the governing power. An army of adventurers from the north, carpetbaggers, as they were called, poured in upon the scene to aid in Reconstruction. Undoubtedly, many men of honor and fine intentions gave unstinted service, 
but the results of their deliberations only aggravated the open wound left by the war. Any number of political doctors offered their prescriptions, but no effective remedy could be found. Under measures admittedly open to grave objections, the southern states were one after another restored to the Union by the grace of Congress, the last one in 1870. Even this grudging concession of the formalities of statehood did not mean a full restoration of honors and privileges. The last soldier was not withdrawn from the last southern capital until 1877, and federal control over elections long remained as a sign of congressional supremacy. THE STATUS OF THE FREEDMEN Even more intricate than the issues involved in restoring the seceded states to the Union was the question of what to do with the newly emancipated slaves. That problem, often put to abolitionists before the war, had become at last a real concern. The Thirteenth Amendment abolishing slavery had not touched it at all. It declared bondmen free, but did nothing to provide them with work or homes, and did not mention the subject of political rights. All these matters were left to the states, and the legislatures of some of them, by their famous black codes, restored a form of servitude under the guise of vagrancy and apprentice laws. Such methods were, in fact, partly responsible for the reaction that led Congress to abandon Lincoln's policies and undertake its own program of reconstruction. Still, no extensive effort was made to solve by law the economic problems of the bondmen. Radical abolitionists had advocated that the slaves, when emancipated, should be given outright the fields of their former masters, but Congress steadily rejected the very idea of confiscation. The necessity of immediate assistance it recognized by creating, in 1865, the Freedmen's Bureau to take care of refugees. It authorized the issue of food and clothing to the destitute, and the renting of abandoned and certain other lands under federal control to former slaves at reasonable rates. But the larger problem of the relation of the freedmen to the land it left to the slow working of time. Against sharp protests from conservative men, particularly among the Democrats, Congress did insist, however, on conferring upon the freedmen certain rights by national law. These rights fell into broad divisions, civil and political. By an act passed in 1866, Congress gave to former slaves the rights of white citizens in the matter of making contracts, giving testimony in courts, and purchasing, selling, and leasing property. As it was doubtful whether Congress had the power to enact this law, there was passed and submitted to the states the Fourteenth Amendment, which gave citizenship to the freedmen, assured them of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, and declared that no state should deprive any person of his life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Not yet satisfied, Congress attempted to give social equality to Negroes by the Second Civil Rights Bill of 1875, which promised to them, among other things, the full and equal enjoyment of inns, theatres, public conveyances, and places of amusement, a law later declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. The matter of political rights was even more hotly contested, but the radical Republicans, like Charles Sumner, asserted that civil rights were not secure unless supported by the suffrage. In this same Fourteenth Amendment they attempted to guarantee the ballot to all Negro men, leaving the women to take care of themselves. The amendment declared, in effect, when any state deprived adult male citizens of the right to vote, its representation in Congress should be reduced in the proportion such persons bore to the voting population. This provision having failed to accomplish its purpose, the Fifteenth Amendment was passed and ratified, expressly declaring that no citizen should be deprived of the right to vote, on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude.
To make assurance doubly secure, Congress enacted in 1870, 1872, and 1873 three drastic laws, sometimes known as force bills, providing for the use of federal authorities, civil and military, in supervising elections in all parts of the Union. So the federal government, having destroyed chattel slavery, sought by legal decree to sweep away all its signs and badges, civil, social, and political. Never, save perhaps in some of the civil conflicts of Greece or Rome, had there occurred in the affairs of a nation a social revolution so complete, so drastic, and far-reaching in its results. Summary of the Sectional Conflict Just as the United States, under the impetus of Western enterprise, rounded out the continental domain, its very existence as a nation was challenged by a fratricidal conflict between two sections. This storm had been long gathering upon the horizon. From the very beginning, in colonial times, there had been a marked difference between the South and the North. The former, by climate and soil, was dedicated to a planting system, the cultivation of tobacco, rice, cotton, and sugar-cane, and in the course of time slave labor became the foundation of the system. The North, on the other hand, supplemented agriculture by commerce, trade, and manufacturing. Slavery, though lawful, did not flourish there. An abundant supply of free labor kept the northern wheels turning. This difference between the two sections, early noted by close observers, was increased with the advent of the steam engine and the factory system. Between 1815 and 1860 an industrial revolution took place in the North. Its signs were gigantic factories, huge aggregations of industrial workers, immense cities, a flourishing commerce, and prosperous banks. Finding an unfavorable reception in the South, the new industrial system was confined mainly to the North. By canals and railways, New York, Boston, and Philadelphia were linked with the wheat-fields of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. A steel net wove north and northwest together. A commercial net supplemented it. Western trade was diverted from New Orleans to the east, and eastern credit sustained western enterprise. In time, the industrial north and the planting south evolved different ideas of political policy. The former looked with favor on protective tariffs, ship subsidies, a sound national banking system, and internal improvements. The farmers of the West demanded that the public domain be divided up into free homesteads for farmers. The South steadily swung around to the opposite view. Its spokesmen came to regard most of these policies as injurious to the planting interests. The economic questions were all involved in a moral issue. The northern states, in which slavery was of slight consequence, had early abolished the institution. In the course of a few years there appeared uncompromising advocates of universal emancipation. Far and wide the agitation spread. The South was thoroughly frightened. It demanded protection against the agitators, the enforcement of its rights in the case of runaway slaves, and equal privileges for slavery in the new territories. With the passing years the conflict between the two sections increased in bitterness. It flamed up in 1820, and was allayed by the Missouri Compromise. It took on the form of a tariff controversy and nullification in 1832. It appeared again after the Mexican War, when the question of slavery in the new territories was raised. Again Compromise, the Great Settlement of 1850, seemed to restore peace, only to prove an illusion. A series of startling effects swept the country into war the repeal of the Missouri Compromise in 1854, the rise of the Republican Party pledged to the prohibition of slavery in the territories, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, John Brown's raid, the election of Lincoln, and secession.
The Civil War, lasting for four years, tested the strength of both North and South, in leadership, in finance, in diplomatic skill, in material resources, in industry, and in armed forces. By the blockade of southern ports, by an overwhelming weight of men and materials, and by relentless hammering on the field of battle, the North was victorious. The results of the war were revolutionary in character. Slavery was abolished and the freedmen given the ballot. The southern planters, who had been the leaders of their section, were ruined financially, and almost to a man excluded from taking part in political affairs. The Union was declared to be perpetual, and the right of a state to succeed settled by the judgment of battle. Federal control over the affairs of states, counties, and cities was established by the Fourteenth Amendment. The power and prestige of the federal government were enhanced beyond imagination. The North was now free to pursue its economic policies, a protective tariff, a national banking system, land grants for railways, free lands for farmers. Planting had dominated the country for nearly a generation. Business enterprise was to take its place. References Northern Accounts J. K. Hosmer, The Appeal to Arms and the Outcome of the Civil War, American Nation Series J. Ropes, History of the Civil War, Best Account of Military Campaigns J. F. Rhodes, History of the United States, Volumes 3, 4, and 5 J. T. Morse, Abraham Lincoln, Two Volumes Southern Accounts W. E. Dodd, Jefferson Davis Jefferson Davis, Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government E. Pollard, The Lost Cause. A. H. Stevens, The War Between the States. Questions. 1. Contrast the reception of secession in 1860 with that given to nullification in 1832. 2. Compare the northern and southern views of the Union. 3. What were the peculiar features of the Confederate Constitution? 4. How was the Confederacy financed? 5. Compare the resources of the two sections. 6. On what foundations did Southern hopes rest? 7. Describe the attempts at a peaceful settlement. 8. Compare the raising of armies for the Civil War with the methods employed in the World War. See below, Chapter 25. 9. Compare the financial methods of the government in the two wars. 10. Explain why the blockade was such a deadly weapon. 11. Give the leading diplomatic events of the war. 12. Trace the growth of anti-slavery sentiment. 13. What measures were taken to restrain criticism of the government? 14. What part did Lincoln play in all phases of the war? 15. State the principal results of the war. 16. Compare Lincoln's plan of reconstruction with that adopted by Congress. 17. What rights did Congress attempt to confer upon the former slaves? Research Topics Was secession lawful? The Southern View by Jefferson Davis in Harding, Select Orations Illustrating American History, pages 364 to 369, Lincoln's View, Harding, pages 371 to 381. The Confederate Constitution. Compare with the Federal Constitution in MacDonald, Documentary Sourcebook, pages 424 to 433, and pages 271 to 279. Federal Legislative Measures. Prepare a table and brief digest of the important laws relating to the war. MacDonald, pages 433 to 482. Economic Aspects of the War. Coleman, Industrial History of the United States, pages 279 to 301. Dewey, Financial History of the United States, chapters 12 and 13. Tabulate the economic measures of Congress in MacDonald.
military campaigns. The great battles are fully treated in Rhodes, History of the Civil War, and teachers desiring to emphasize military affairs may assign campaigns to members of the class for study and report. A briefer treatment in Elson, History of the United States, pages 641 to 785. Biographical Studies Lincoln, Davis, Lee, Grant, Sherman, and other leaders in civil and military affairs, with reference to local war governors. English and French Opinion of the War, Rhodes, History of the United States, Volume 4, pages 337 to 394. The South During the War, Rhodes, Volume 5, pages 343 to 382. The North During the War, Rhodes, Volume 5, pages 189 to 342. Reconstruction Measures, MacDonald, Sourcebook, pages 500 to 511, 514 to 518, 529 to 530, Elson, pages 786 to 799. The Force Bills, MacDonald, pages 547 to 551, 554 to 564. End of Section 8. End of History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary R. Beard, Part 5, Sectional Conflict and Reconstruction.